So here we're going to be dealing with the last covenant. Like we said, we were in the Torah, then you have the Nevi'im, the prophets, and then the Ketuvim. And the vast majority of the covenants are in the Torah. But then when you get to the prophets, we looked at the Davidic covenant yesterday or last night. And then now we're going to look at the final covenant provided in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, now, this should kind of give you an idea about how important the Hebrew Bible still is, not only in understanding the language of the New Testament, but understanding the theology and the anticipations of the New Testament. And that's why I never quite understood those books where it's just the New Testament plus the Psalms or something like that, like you're missing the entire backbone of it. You're missing the entire basis. I often compared it to, uh, you guys remember VHS tapes? Okay, yeah. So I'm, I'm like now one of those people, or like remember when. Uh, and then in the movie Titanic, right? It, it had to come out on two different ones. And the first one was like the whole ship. And then the second movie was the boat sinking. And if you just start at that second movie, you're not going to understand much. You won't see, you don't, you don't understand who's who and what they're doing, what they're anticipating, where they're trying to go. Same thing with the Bible. If you just open up in the New Testament, of course, it's the power of God's salvation. Of course, it can lead to salvation. But in terms of understanding the deep things of God, we need the Hebrew Bible, and you see that when studying the covenants. So here we're going to look at the New Covenant, and this one is a very important one uh, for at least two reasons. The first being, again, this kind of feeds into that whole dialogue about the law and Sinai versus the New Covenant and how you really um, kind of juxtapose the two. Now, in our conversations before, I separated covenant and law, and we're going to just kind of touch on that very quickly in a little bit. But what's very important is when people say that the law of Moses was either replaced or that it was nullified or that it was renewed in the new covenant, the idea that people have is, ah, then God is done with the Hebrew Bible, then God is done with his covenants there. And what I want to show is that that's absolutely not true. Even though Jeremiah does juxtapose them, the law on Sinai and the new covenant, and he says that this is going to be a new one, not like that one, that by no means means that the Torah is done away with or that God's people are done away with. As Paul says, God forbid. So that's the first thing, kind of uh, understanding the relationship between Sinai and the new covenant. And the second thing is more when you share about your faith and you share about what Yeshua did and you tell someone that, hey, did you know that at the Passover meal when Yeshua said that this is the new covenant which I make with you, that he instituted the new covenant? And then what is your friend who's knowledgeable about Jeremiah 31 going to say? Go look out your window. We are not living in the new covenant. You see pain, you see chaos all over. And so how do we rectify this notion that Yeshua said that he's instituting the new covenant, and yet when you look around, it doesn't look like that at all? Are we really in there? Is there any way to live in the new covenant today? Okay, so quick uh, recap. At the risk of beating a dead horse, I am going to put this slide up just so we, again, remember the covenants and how they kind of work together. Now here I have the covenant with the world and the covenant with Abraham on two sides. Um, that's, that's not really correct. What you really should have, because the slide's not big enough, what you really should have is the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Noah, which is for the entire world, and then within that covenant, that's when God makes his special covenant with Abraham, right? So it's not like two different houses going on. It's all one house, but a specific room was given to uh, Abraham, if you want to think of it that way. So the covenants with the world, we have the Adamic covenant, which again, we are living in the chaos of it still. We're living in the consequences, but you have the hope of the seed of the woman. And so that's why the Bible really invites you to follow this seed 
and where it's going to go. And then you have the Noahic Covenant. And the Noahic Covenant was, on the one hand, a renewal of the Adamic. You have a lot of similarities between them. Go out and multiply, have dominion over the earth. But then there's some new regulations as well. Now, what's key about the Noahic Covenant is that it's unconditional. Does anyone know the sign? I think we spoke about this, the sign of the Noahic Covenant, the rainbow, right? That there's no way that God will ever again flood the earth. It's an unconditional covenant. And understanding that is important because when the prophets speak about the new covenant, they compare it to the covenant with Noah. So the Noahic Covenant is an unconditional covenant. Now, when you get to the Abrahamic Covenant, what are the three uh, tenets? What are the three things that come out of the Abrahamic Covenant? Land, seed, and blessing. And the land... It anticipates in Deuteronomy 29 through 30, the land covenant, which I'm going to just touch on very quickly in a second. The seed, again, when, when God promised it to Abraham, it was a notion of many descendants. However, you also have that seed of the woman in the back of your mind. And so I think both, uh, both themes are going on there where you're looking for the Messiah but you're also looking for the multiple descendants. And so the seed promise culminates in the Davidic covenant. And as we saw yesterday, you have a Davidic covenant. It's great. It was kind of working itself out with Solomon, but he disobeyed. And then you had the exile. And although they could have said, you know what, the promises are done. We're not going to trust in God anymore. What you see developed during the exile is an anticipation of the Messiah, that now we're going to have a messianic figure who's going to reign on the throne of David forever. And so that's what we're still waiting for here. Um, and again, if anyone ever tells you that the, the exile, the 586 BCE, where the Babylonians came and took out all of Judah, that that marked the end of the Davidic reign because Solomon fulfilled it, you could just say that the prophets had a very different idea. They were still waiting. Amos was still waiting. Jeremiah was still waiting. So I'd rather go with them than with your current viewpoint. So you have the land, the seed, and then finally here we're going to talk about the blessing. And the blessing anticipates right from the very beginning that all the nations of the earth will be blessed, that they're going to be brought in, that there's going to be some type of blessing they're going to enjoy through this covenant with Abraham. So this here shows you kind of the basis and the importance of the covenant uh, of Abraham. It's really, again, the backbone to much of what we see uh, later on in scripture. Now, in regards to the land covenant, very quickly. Uh, the land covenant, you find it in Deuteronomy 29 through 30. Now, again, this, there's some debate, uh, concerning this. I feel like I say that a lot. You know, there, there's some debate, there's some, uh, disagreement on this. Some people don't agree that this is a unique covenant, but I'm going to read to you De uh, Deuteronomy 29 verse 1. It says, these are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make. You guys remember the two Hebrew words for covenants or not for covenant to make a covenant? Karat and you guys are great. And which one is making a new covenant? Oh, okay. Karat. That was so close. It was a 50-50. Karat is making a, a new covenant. And that's the Hebrew word that we see here. It's that God well, uh, commanded Moses to karat, to make a covenant with the sons of Israel. So it's a new covenant in the land of Moab besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb, right? Which is a Mount Sinai. So this is a distinct covenant. And what he tells them here essentially is that you're going to be in your land, you're going to sin, you're going to be cast out, right? So you have kind of like those mosaic laws embedded in here. You're going to be cast out and people are going to say, oh my goodness, what did these people do that was so bad? But then in Deuteronomy 30, God promises that he will restore them, that he will bring them back to the land. It says that once the blessings and curses have come upon you and you call upon the Lord that you obey with all your heart, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity. And then here's the key that he will give you a circumcised heart. 
So there's going to be a spiritual renewal. So what that means is that even as Israel, yes, they're reestablishing the land today, but you have a great diaspora going on where Jews are still living outside the land, hence being here. Even though we have this, there is a hope and an anticipation that there will be a regathering into Israel. And this is very important for a couple of reasons. First, biblically, you have this notion of sacred space. If you've ever heard of that, this idea, we all have kind of a notion of sacred space. Uh, you know, there, there's some places that you don't bring food because, you know, it's more dirty. There's other places, you know what I mean? You keep things separate, even in your household. We have that in our faith system as well. Uh, in the Garden of Eden, it was sacred space. It was where you could fellowship with God. And I feel like we're always trying to get back into the garden. There's a great book um, by Hamilton, and it was called um, From Paradise to the Promised Land. Right? So you're, you're kicked out of Eden, but you're trying to get to the promised land because that's kind of where God was going to be. You have this notion of sacred space also with the burning bush. Remember with Moses, he said, you know, take off your, your shoes. So land is very important. And unfortunately, in the New Testament uh, theology, a lot of people say it was just superseded or it was really just fulfilled by being in Messiah. And that's such a cop out. That's like this sleight of hand kind of thing. Uh, that we spoke about before. So it's important for your theology, but it's also important when understanding what God is doing in the world. Unfortunately, in the second century, um, the church fathers, or at least some of them, Origen, for example, he understood the exile of the Jewish people as God's abandonment uh, of, of the Jewish people. And so he writes, therefore he, also having separated from her, married, so to speak, another having given into the hands of the former a bill of divorcement, wherefore they can no longer do the things enjoyed, by, uh, enjoyed on them by the law. So he's talking about God, that he gave a bill of divorce to Israel. Um, wherefore they can, okay, sorry, because of the bill of divorcement. And a sign that she has received the bill of divorcement is this, that Jerusalem was destroyed, along with what they call the sanctuary of the, and the things that are in it, right? So the idea of 70 CE, after Yeshua, when the Romans came and they kicked out the Jewish people and they destroyed the temple, after that, the church fathers understood that event to be God's bill of divorcement of Israel that they're done with, and now it's the church. Whereas when you know the land covenant, this exile was already anticipated and we know they're going to return. Origin. Sorry, yes. Uh, so that's why it's important to understand the land covenant. It's not really a complex one. It's an unconditional one that simply says they're going to be kicked out, but they're going to be brought back in. Okay, so any questions on that? Okay, perfect. So let's jump into the new covenant here. Uh, now, there are really three prophets, three main prophets who speak about the new covenant. Of course, it's, it's mentioned in the minor prophets all over, but I'm just going to touch on a couple of passages, kind of like, again, you know, when you take rocks, you skip it across water. That's sort of how we're going to deal with this passage here. And so, if you remember, we're right fresh off of the exile. Uh, two exiles, I'm, I'm kind of speaking about them uh, at the same time here. Uh, we're talking about the one at 586 by the Babylonians, the, the same one that we spoke about last night. And one of the major issues that Israel had to wrestle with, or Judah at least, when the Babylonians came and kicked them out, was the Davidic king. What are we going to do? How are we going to get a new king? And what you see here is the development of a messianic hope. In the same way, another question is, what about our covenant with God? Was, did God change his mind? Is this a mark of rejection? Why are we being kicked out of our land when we had the temple there? Now, the prophets immediately scratch any notion that Israel has been replaced. Remember Jeremiah, he actually gave a time frame 
of when they're going to be brought back to the land. You have Ezra and Nehemiah, you have the 70 years. So this notion of being scratched was right off the, uh, wasn't even considered. But when you look at the Hebrew Bible, you know, there's often this correlation between spiritual apostasy and physical destruction or physical judgment, right? And in Deuteronomy, it's a, it's a very kind of black and white um, instruction. You know, if you do good, you'll be blessed. And if you don't, you'll be cursed. And then you get to the book of Job, which totally throws a wrench in that structure, which is, you know, it's cause for um, good conversation. Just shows that things are not always as clean as we want them. But by and large, if you do good, you'll be blessed. And if you do bad, you'll be cursed, right? So there's always this correlation between the physical and the spiritual. And so here the prophets are telling them, look, you were just kicked out. You're going to be brought back in. Physically, you're going to be okay. But then the question in the people's minds is, what about spiritually? What is going to give them that heart that they're going to love God and obey him? Because you remember when God gave the Torah on Sinai? What happened just a couple of chapters later? You have the golden calf, right? Now God theoretically could have called it off at that point, but instead you have a covenant renewal. And then again, a covenant renewal with the kings. You see covenant renewals with Jehoiada, with Hezekiah, with Josiah, Ezra, Nehemiah on the return. There's constant covenant renewals, but what happens? We break it. You remember when we looked at that cycle of judges? Yeah, you know, that they're, they're going around in a circle. And so then the main question is, how are we going to break this cycle so we could have spiritual harmony with God? And that's why in the exile, not only do you have this growth of a, a hope for a Davidic king, a hope for a messianic king, but at the same time, there's this hope for a new covenant. One where we're going to have the Torah on our hearts, where we're really going to be able to live it out. And that's what we see with the new covenant here in the anticipation. Now, the major difference, of course, is the fact that we have the Torah written on our hearts in this new covenant, as we're going to see. So, looking at the new covenant here, um, one of the, we spoke about supersessionism a little bit, uh, replacement theology a little bit, and, you know, we spoke about the various different types. There's punitive, which is essentially, you know, God or the Jewish people rejected God, and so therefore God rejected the Jewish people. Uh, then you have more economic supersessionism, right? This idea that, well, you know, God was working with Israel, but all these things really pointed to something greater. And then when the greater thing came, he was kind of done with that old stuff. And that was usually the type of narrative that I saw when I went to evangelical seminaries. You know, God chose the Jewish people, and he gave them these commands, and they kept breaking it. So eventually he just got fed up you know, cut it off, brought Yeshua who destroyed the law, and now we have the new covenant people, right? That's, that's the narrative that's given, and they point to the new covenant as that breaking point, this kind of plan B. The issue with that is the new covenant, or at least the theme of it, was planned right from Deuteronomy. It's planned right from the Hebrew Bible. And so if you're familiar with the language of the circumcision of the heart, it's that language that draws itself all the way through. So first in Deuteronomy 10, verse 12 through 16, Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 through 16, here uh, it says, Now Israel, fear the Lord your God to walk in all of his ways and to love him. Serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and circumcise your heart. And so here we have not only this type of, okay, you have physical circumcision, but it really points to a spiritual reality that you need to encompass and you need to adopt, but it gives us the meaning of the circumcision of the heart. It's the ability to truly worship and love God. Okay, so in Deuteronomy 10, he tells them, circumcise your heart. That's the command, right? And then you get to the land covenant, Deuteronomy 30. And what does he say? 
when you guys are out in exile and when you turn back to me, I'm going to bring you back. But now there's a difference with the circumcision of the heart. It says, the Lord your God will restore you from captivity. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart. There's a substantial difference. In Deuteronomy 10, the command is circumcise your heart. In Deuteronomy 30, God's the one who's going to be circumcising your heart. We won't be able to do it on our own. It's something that's going to be done to us like a spiritual operation to give us the ability to truly love God. So this notion of, of a spiritual, of a circumcision of the heart was already embedded and was already anticipated in the Hebrew Bible. And this is important, especially when you're reading the New Testament and again, the type of language that it uses. You know, one of the major debates, you know, if you ever read patristic, does anyone interested in patristic literature, like early church fathers? Does people delve into that? Okay. Anyway, if, uh, if you ever stumble upon uh, the vast literature there, because I just had to read it for, for school, you're going to see so much debate about the identity of Yeshua, about the deity, right? Is he God or is he man or was he adopted or is he half-half or full-full and, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? Because essentially what we're trying to do is define a mystery uh, with, with our limited language. And so when you, when you deal with the, the deity of the Messiah about who he is, um, you know, people fall on, on both sides of the equation and they appeal to different things, right? Those who uh, believe in the deity of the Messiah, you know, he walked on water, of course, he forgave sin. Those who don't, they take statements like the fact that uh, when the young rich ruler said, um, oh, good teacher, and he said, no one is good but God. And so it goes back and forth, but I came across a book that I thought was really helpful called Putting Jesus in His Place. Right, and this is uh, this was written by a couple of people, and essentially they use an acronym, hands, in order to to argue that you know you're not just going to find like one verse that that says deity or doesn't say deity, but when you look at the whole picture about who Yeshua is, it points to his deity, it points to his position, um, about his unique position and elevated position. And so here, if you could look at the acronym on the left hand side, it says hands going down. And so the first thing you have are honors, the notion that Yeshua shared the honor due to God. And you see this in John 5, 22. And if you ever read John 5, you know, John really kind of treats us like he puts Yeshua on trial, you know, with witnesses and, and how, you know, John the Baptist witnessed of him and, and God the Father and the scriptures. It's really a lot of fun. But here he says in John 5, 21, for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so even the son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the father judges anyone, but he gives all judgment to the son so that all will honor the son, even as they honor the father. Now you couple that with the command for when God says that do not give anything to idols, do not give anything to other gods because he is a jealous God, you only give it to him. The notion that Yeshua receives the honor is one element uh, to consider. The second, you have the attributes. Uh, in Colossians 1.15, the notion that Yeshua is in the image of God, that he's the fullness of the deity of God. And this is why, you know, yesterday I threw up a verse from Hebrews 1.6 uh, where it says that the angels will worship God, uh, will, will worship the Son, that's huge. You're not supposed to worship anyone but God. So the very fact that in Hebrews it says that the angels are going to worship the Son shows, again, his elevated position. Then you have the names, that Yeshua shares the names of God. John 1.1, 1, 1. you remember when Thomas, you remember when he, when he feels the Lord? Uh, do you remember what he says? You know, he was doubting, doubting Thomas. Unfortunately, he's like perpetually known as the doubter. But, you know, you have doubting Thomas. He wasn't sure about the resurrection. Then he feels uh, Yeshua. And then he says, my Lord and my God. 
right? Which uh, people who, who don't agree with the deity will say, well, he was just kind of using it as an exclamation, you know, like, oh my, you know, but uh, no. He was proclaiming that, oh, my Lord and my God. Then deeds, that Yeshua shares the deeds of the Messiah. You know, Isaiah 42 says, no, there's no Savior but me, the fact that Yeshua is our Savior. You know, one of the biggest things, you remember in the Adamic covenant when I spoke about water and how water really represented chaos, I think you really want to have that, you know, in the creation account and God has no, no issue with the other, you know, gods out there. I think you really want to have that in mind when Yeshua is on the boat and the storm is, is going crazy and he just calms the storm. This notion of having control over a chaotic element like water shows his power. And then finally, the, the seat that Yeshua shares the seat of God's throne in Mark 14, 62. This is where the high priest asks him who he is, and Yeshua says that he is the son of man, and he's going to come on the clouds and sit at the right hand of the Father. And then what did the high priest do? Ripped and yelled blasphemy, right? So you have these things, you know, it's, it's kind of like the, I remember the, the debates, you know, like a, a, there was a debate about, you know, alcohol. Like I went to a school, my first, uh, the first school I went to, a very conservative, you know, that uh, Jesus turned the water into grape juice, uh, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, no alcohol, and then, well, it's okay, and this and that. And I remember a friend challenged me, you know, you just need to see the broader picture. The scriptures emphasize sobriety. They emphasize having a sharp mind. That's the emphasis. You know what I mean? Instead of trying to look at this little verse and that little verse. In the same way, you, that's how we deal with who Yeshua is. You look at the big picture and all these elements about him. And when it comes to the circumcision of the heart, I think that fits right into the deeds of the Messiah. You know, when you turn to Colossians 2, 9 through 11, when Paul is speaking about the great works of Messiah, it states, for in him is all the fullness, I have it right here, in him is all the fullness of deity that dwells in bodily form, and in or through him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Now, I cannot tell you how many times I've heard that, and it's, ah, okay, so the physical circumcision was kind of just replaced by now the spiritual circumcision made without hands. That's not what it's saying. If you have Deuteronomy 30 in mind, that God's the one who's going to circumcise your heart, and here we have the circumcision made without hands, but now it's Yeshua who does it, now you have the deeds of Yeshua equated with the anticipation of God in Deuteronomy 30. And so understanding this anticipation, understanding this, um, this hope, I think would really, really help um, kind of disintegrate a lot of the like replacement theology uh, that we see. And um, I, I think a lot of it comes from, I don't want to say ignorance, a lot of it just comes from focusing on New Testament as solely, as kind of like the literature just kind of going back to the Hebrew Bible for proof texts. But instead, you start from the Hebrew Bible and you go forward. And what's really interesting, actually, is after it speaks about in Colossians 2, it says, um, the circumcision made without hands. Uh, a couple of verses later, Paul goes on to say, therefore, so because of what we just said, the circumcision of hands, no one is to act as your judge in regards to food and drink. So here he starts getting into the law written on your heart. So here we're connecting the circumcision of the heart with now the new law written on your heart and how to navigate that type of, uh, that type of lifestyle. So main point, the new covenant was already anticipated. It wasn't a plan B, oh my goodness, what am I gonna do? They're already in exile, let me send someone new. It was already anticipated and so we see the fulfillment of that when we look at the prophets. So. First, again, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, those are the ones that we're going to look at. So first we have uh, Isaiah. Now, in Isaiah, when he speaks about it, he doesn't mention New Covenant. The only one who actually mentions New Covenant is Jeremiah. 
but they speak about the characteristics of it. And in Isaiah, you really see this in Isaiah 54 and 55. Now, if you know your messianic prophecy, does that ring a bell? You have it in Isaiah 54, 55. What bell does that ring? 53, right, where it speaks about the suffering servant who's going to bear transgression, die, and then somehow see the seed of, of his work, meaning his resurrection. And so, um, you know, I, I taught a class on covenant and messianism together, and these two themes throughout scripture really go hand in hand. So I love in Isaiah where it speaks about the spiritual work of the Messiah and then the aftermath of it, which is the new covenant. But so you come to Isaiah 54. Uh, if you want to turn there, and we're going to look at verse 8 and read a little bit. So Isaiah 54, it's talking about how uh, the, the judgment that they underwent, the judgment that Israel underwent. And then it says in verse 8, In an outburst of anger, I hid my face. Remember that language of hiding your face? In Isaiah, it's all over. It's, excuse me, it's about um, when there's sin. I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you. This is in verse 8. Then in verse 9, and here's the key in verse 9. For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains may be removed from the hills, and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken. The first thing that we have is when Israel comes back, it's an unconditional covenant. Again, the one on Sinai was a, a suzerain vassal that was conditional. This one is going to be like the one that he made with Noah. It's an unconditional covenant. The hills could shake. Anything could happen. My loving kindness with you will not be broken. You see this, uh, this term here, covenant of peace. My covenant of peace will not be broken. There's a lot of discussion about what that is. You actually only find it three times in Scripture. Um, the first time, Numbers 25, it, it talks about an eternal covenant. Although Ezekiel 37, he also uses covenant of peace to speak about this new covenant. So, you know, does it mean that it's the new covenant or does it mean it's an eternal covenant or simply a covenant that's going to give you peace? We're not sure, but nevertheless, it's a synonym that's used for it here. So in the first section, you have its comparison with the covenant of Noah. And then if you just want to jot this down, right in the next chapter in Isaiah 55 verse 3, it says, incline your ear, come to me, listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. So not only is the new covenant compared to the one like Noah, because it's unconditional, it's also compared to the Davidic covenant, which is unconditional, right? So you see how all these covenants kind of flow together uh, in their themes. So the first thing that we have from Isaiah is that it's an unconditional covenant. The second thing we see in verse uh, Isaiah 4, 54, verse 13, is that we're going to be taught by God. It says, all your sons will be taught of the Lord, and the well-being of your sons will be great. Now, this anticipation of being taught by God is something that you find often in Isaiah for an eschatological age, like a future age. Uh, do, you guys, do you guys sing the song here, like that classic, come let us go up to the mountain? Yeah, sure, of course, who doesn't, right? That's it. It's, it's Isaiah 2. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and he will teach us his ways. We're going to be taught by God. So here, that's a characteristic of the new covenant. Uh, in my, in my, uh, my master's thesis back in 2015, I wrote on Isaiah 30, 20, uh, which in the Hebrew, there's a grammatical issue, which is why it, it merited um, some, some analysis. 
But in uh, Isaiah 30.20, I argue that this is, the teacher here is God. And it says, although the, the Lord has given you bread of privation and water of oppression, he, your teacher, who I argue is God, will no longer hide himself, uh, but be- your eyes will behold your teacher. Your ears will hear the word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it whenever you turn to the left or to the right. Right? So God is going to be teaching us and showing us the way. So you see this close, intimate relationship with the Lord anticipated in the new covenant. And this, I think, is really kind of what foreshadows the, uh, the new heart and the, the dwelling of the Spirit within us that Ezekiel speaks about. So in Isaiah, you get this notion you're going to be taught by God, and we have an unconditional covenant. Then you move over to Ezekiel. Now, does anyone know what was Ezekiel, what, what tribe was Ezekiel from? What, was he, uh, I mean, he was a prophet, but he was also a, I have no idea even how to phrase this question. He was a priest, okay? And one of his major concerns was the temple. And what he often argued about, you know, he has that whole vision about God leaving the temple. And the reason for that is because when you get to the time of Ezekiel, the people, they had the temple, but they treated it like a good luck charm. They viewed the temple as God's presence with us, and so therefore we're untouchable. Even though we're not doing social justice, even though we're not doing justice and living Torah in our lives, we have the temple, so we're just going to you know, offer the sacrifices, and God will continue to protect us. And Ezekiel is saying, you guys are totally missing the point. And that's why in Ezekiel 8 onward, you have this vision about God leaving the temple, and it's no longer inhabited from him. And this here, um, the, the, the temple and the way that it functions, you know, it, it, it's a good illustration and it's a good representation of idolatry. You know, we spoke about idolatry yesterday. And again, the blessings of God could become idols. An idol is anything that we use that we think could bring us closer to God. And it could be something good. Um, you know, in, in, um, in the narrative in Numbers 21, you know, the, the nation of Israel, they grumble against God. And then what does God do? He sends a bunch of serpents, right, to come and to bite them. And some of them are dying. And then Moses is praying and he's asking God for uh, redemption. And so God instructs him, take a, a serpent and tie it up and put it up on the pole. And whenever you look on that serpent, you'll be healed. Right? So that's a great thing. And Yeshua even used that. In John 3, 14, he said, just as Moses lifted up the snake, in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone believes on him. It's a great thing, but it was also abused. When a revival was led by Hoshea in 2 Kings 18.4, it said that he removed the high places, he broke the pillars, and he broke the pieces of the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel offered to it, and it was called the Hushan. It was something God gave, it was something that pointed forward to Yeshua, and yet it was also twisted to become idolatrous. Anything could become idolatry when you start focusing on that rather than focusing on God. God gives us that warning that we have this tendency to focus on the item instead of what it actually points to. Have, you, have anyone ever heard the expression, or expression, has anyone ever heard the fact that we're all addicted to our phones? Okay, people say that a lot. There was actually a study done uh, a couple of years back they took 18 to 25-year-olds to see whether they were really addicted to their iPhones. And this is what they, they monitored their brain, especially when they heard the ringtone or they heard the vibration of it. And this is what it says. It says, the most striking finding of all was the flurry of activation in the insular cortex of the brain, which is associated with feelings of love and compassion. The subject's brains responded to the sound of their phone 
as he would respond to the presence or proximity of a girlfriend, of a boyfriend, of a spouse, or a family member. In short, the subjects didn't demonstrate classic brain-based signs of addiction. They loved their phones, right? And that's what it is. Your phone is really just a mediator. It allows you to call people. It allows you to retrieve information. But what we have now is a focus on the phone that even if I'm with people, I need my phone. We now love our phones. And that's a tendency that God is fighting against. You use something that's supposed to point you to God, but you're eventually just going to focus on that thing. And that's what happened with the temple. And that's why the people were uh, judged. And so in our day and age, uh, again, I mentioned this yesterday, something like doctrinal accuracy, studying the word of God. That's something that's supposed to bring us, again, you study Torah in order to love God and to love people. But at the end of the day, if we're just studying it for the sake of, of our own knowledge or for the sake of just fun, it can lead us away from God because it becomes an end in and of itself. Music is another thing. Music was great in the temple. Music was, is a great way to kind of, you know, it's a liturgy and it kind of, you, you focus on God. You're able to say something as a community together. But if you look to music for that emotional high and you think like that's the end case, that could become an idol as well. At the end of the day, only the Messiah brings us closer to God. Everything else falls short. And so that's the danger of idolatry. And that's what Ezekiel was fighting against. This, this heart of idolatry, which is why we need spiritual um, circumcision and spiritual operation. So if you would, in Ezekiel uh, 11, 19 through 20, I have it up here. And here he speaks about the, the new spirit and the new heart which the Lord will give. It says, And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them, and I will take the heart of stone of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, uh, out of the heart of flesh, sorry, so that, and that's the key word here, this is the entire purpose, so that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Again, if anyone says that the new covenant replaces the, the law, the whole point of the new covenant was so that we could live out the Torah. Uh, and that's what you see it right here. I'm going to circumcise their hearts so that they may have, uh, they may live out my statutes. That's the purpose that we find. Now you also have this interesting phrase. I'm going to put in them a new spirit. And the term new spirit, um, many think that this refers to the Holy Spirit. You know, when you see the Ruach in the, in the Hebrew Bible, he was often functioning as a terms of empowerment. You see that especially in Judges, that the Ruach, the, the, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit would come on the people in, uh, in Judges, they would empower them, and they would go and fulfill their duty. Now, one of the main distinctions when you come to the uh, New Covenant is that it's not as though the Spirit just comes on us and leaves. Instead, what we have is a permanent indwelling of the Spirit, living within us, giving us a new heart and a new spirit. If we are in the New Covenant today, the spiritual New Covenant, we're baptized, indwelt, and sealed by the Spirit living within us. In Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, Paul writes that we were sealed by the promise of the Holy Spirit who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So we're indwelt by the Spirit. What now? Is everything good? Is everything Kolba said there? Can we just continue on with our lives? We're actually commanded in Ephesians 5, 8 in terms of living with the Spirit Paul instructs us, do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So on the one hand, you're sealed. On the one hand, you have the indwelling of the Spirit within you. But on the other hand, Paul instructs us to constantly be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the main question comes, how can we be filled with the Spirit? 
How can you and I know today that we're being filled with the Spirit? What are the characteristics of that? What does it mean? Now, of course, a major thing to take into consideration is the contrast, right? Don't be drunk with wine. What happens when you're drunk with wine? Obviously, you, you lose the ability with your faculties and you lose the ability to, to you know, speak as well and all that kind of stuff. Well, in the same way, when you come to the Spirit, it's not that you should be drunk in the Spirit because, again, sobriety is very important, but it's a matter of control, that you're giving the Spirit control over you in order to convict you, in order to lead you, and you see how important being filled is. The verb here only used one time in the New Testament, being filled with the Spirit. It's a passive, meaning it's done to you. The Spirit fills you. It's a plural, meaning, you know, uh, yesterday we spoke about the, the um, ordination, the Shamashim, right? And it was such a great point that was made that this isn't promotion. This isn't like, ooh, like they're better than everyone else. It's identifying their gifts and giving them a position that they could serve the body the best. In the same way, it's not, oh, the most godly, they're going to be filled. It's a plural verb, meaning everyone, all believers, everyone in Ephesus and everyone who reads this, we are called to be filled with the Spirit. And it's a present imperative, meaning it's a continuous action. It's not something that happens once. It's something that has to happen over and over. In Acts 2, it says that the apostles were there and they were filled with the Spirit. They're speaking in tongues. People are coming to believe. And then in Acts 4, again, they're praying and they're filled with the Spirit. And so they're going out and they're doing ministry. They're speaking with boldness. It's not like they sinned in verse 3. It's not like you're filled until you sin and then you got to, you know, get back up there. It's something that has to happen over and over. It's a continuous effort in order to be filled by the Spirit. And so the question is how? You know, Paul also warns about being filled with unrighteousness in Romans 1.9. How could we be sure that we're filled with the Spirit? Uh, a lot of studies are done on this. I'm just going to mention two things. First, Paul tells us in, uh, in Ephesians, one of the instructions about living with the Spirit, he says, do not grieve the Spirit. And the term grieve there is a term used for sorrow, for repentance. Do not, you know, I don't want to say that you're going to make the Spirit repent that He's in you or something like that, but don't grieve the Spirit because you have the new Spirit within you. How do you grieve the Spirit? Paul tells us, by sin. Living as a pagan, lying, anger, stealing. When we have these, these sins within us, when we're convicted and we don't yield to the Spirit, that's when He's grieved. And as Lewis Schaefer said, and I think he captured it well, when we grieve the Spirit, when sin is tolerated in the believer's life, when we know we have sin, and again, we're compartmentalizing it, we're saying it's okay, the Spirit who indwells him must turn from his ministry through him to a pleading ministry to him, right? He cannot work through you anymore. Now he has to work in you for that conviction. So the first thing is always, you know, like just like David, a man after God's own heart, when sin comes up, when you're convicted with it, you turn from it right away. So first, do not grieve the Spirit. And second, do not quench the Holy Spirit. Now, what is the word quench? Quench is actually a good thing uh, in Ephesians 6. You know, it says the body of armor and you're able to quench the, the fire of, of the devil. Uh, it says that the, the fire in hell will never be quenched. What does it mean to quench the Spirit? The way I like to think about it is just kind of like putting a big kind of duvet blanket over the Spirit. That they're leading you to do something and you say, no, I'm not going to do it. That's quenching the Spirit. And so then... In terms of practical application, what does that mean? Paul tells us right in the context, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances. It's talking about spiritual gifts. If you're in the new covenant, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians, you have a spiritual gift. I mean, you may have one of many. It may be service, it may be teaching, it may be exhortation, but the purpose of your gift is for your community. The purpose of your gift is the edification of the body of Messiah. 
And so in order to work out the gifts that the Spirit has for you, it is imperative to get involved. It is imperative to be part of the body, to be serving whatever uh, capacity that may be in. So therefore, to walk with the Spirit, we must A, take care of our hearts, make sure we're not harboring any sin, B, be proactive in the Spirit, uh, be proactive in, in searching after God, be proactive in the body of the Messiah and serving. And then C, in order to get drunk, what do you need to do? Drink, right? And then you probably have to drink a little bit more and drink and drink and drink, and then you'll get really, right? Same thing with the Spirit. You pursue the Spirit through prayer, through fasting, through reading, and you continue to pursue the Spirit in that way. And that's how we make sure that we're filled. Ephesians tells us in uh, Ephesians 5, if you have the fruits of the Spirit, if you're walking with the Spirit, you're going to be singing praises to God. You're going to be thankful to God. You're going to be giving thanks. You're going to be serving one another. The fruit of the Spirit will be evident in you. And so this is really one of the blessed things that we have about living in the new covenant, the fact that we could have an intimate relationship with God, having a new heart and a new spirit within us. So here, that was Ezekiel's main point. You have a new a spirit that's going to come over us, and you're going to have a new heart, right? So he spoke against the temple, and those were his main points. You're no longer going to have to commit this idolatry. We're going to break the cycle and focus on the Lord. And then finally, we come to Jeremiah. And this one is like the mother load, right? The mothership, Jeremiah 31. I'm only going to touch on a couple of passages in Jeremiah. The first one is Jeremiah 16, 14 through 18. Jeremiah 16, 14 through 18. And the reason I love this passage is because it really sets the stage for the Passover Seder with the Messiah in the New Testament. You know, in, in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 22, when he's having the, the Passover Seder, what does he do? He juxtaposes, really, the, the, the Exodus and the Passover with the new covenant and what he's going to bring. Notice what Jeremiah says here. He says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought the sons out of Israel, or the brought Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north who brought them back, like Deuteronomy says, right? So we're no longer really going to be speaking about, oh, the exodus was so great as national redemption. Now we're going to be talking about the new covenant and how great that is. And that's why when you get to Luke 22 and the Passover Seder, what I believe to be the Passover Seder, there's a lot of, you know, debate as to how many traditions were actually there at the time of Yeshua. But if it is similar to what we have today, you remember the four cups? right? And then after the meal, you drink the third cup, which is the cup of redemption. That's the one that represents that God took them out of Egypt. And then what does Yeshua say? This is the new covenant, which I make in you. And so an accusation is, how could he have changed the tradition or replaced it? He was following Jeremiah. He was fulfilling this hope. No longer are you going to speak about that as much. Now you're going to talk about this new covenant. And then also, what I really love is at the end, behold, I'm going to send for many fishermen and they will fish for them and bring them back. And then Yeshua comes in Matthew 4 and says, I'm going to make you fishermen. I'm going to make you fishers of men, right? So you see these play on words going on and, and, and the, the reliance of this new covenant language on Jeremiah. And then we come to Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And this is where you really have the, the articulation of the new covenant. And so here, just to point out some details, First, you have the parties, right? Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the Christians, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, right? This is a covenant that was made with Israel. The prospect that the making of this covenant replaced Israel makes no sense, at least according to Jeremiah. 
It's a covenant made with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And then second here, it is not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, right? So in my view, personally, this new covenant, the, the Mosaic one, the one that was uh, made on Sinai, the suzerain vassal one, it was broken. And this new covenant is a one that, that replaces it in terms of its structure. But again, separate covenant from Torah. These are two different things. The Torah could change. The covenant's being replaced, but now the Torah could be written on your heart. And that's what's unique about the new covenant. Uh, I remember when I was, uh, I was dialoguing with an Orthodox rabbi via email, not with anything with Messianism. Um, well, it had to do with it. We were actually debating, but not with the book project that I spoke about yesterday. But we were talking about this, this new covenant in Jeremiah. And I think he put it really well when he said in this email, and I'm quoting him, it seems that the interpretation of Jeremiah would be that the new covenant is not a new set of laws, but a new relationship with the law, a relationship that will not include the possibility of violation. And that's what we have in this new covenant. So did the new covenant replace the um, Mosaic law or the Mosaic covenant? In my view, yes. But that does not mean what many people take it to mean. That's why this always needs to be teased out and articulated uh, when you talk about it. So what is this new relationship with the law? What are the new characteristics that we get to live with? First, we have the law written on our hearts. And we spoke about this quite a bit. You could look at Jeremiah 31, 33, where he says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. Again, the main point here is we're going to be living in obedience. Again, no temptation is too much that has overcome you. The fact that we have the ability to be obedient to God because you have the spirit living within you. The only question is, are you going to listen to the spirit? You know, the, the whole theme of submission and not usurping the authority of God, you see it with Abraham, and it goes all the way through the Bible to us today. It's something that we still need to live with, submitting to the Lord. So the first thing we have is the law within the heart. The second thing is universal obedience. Okay, so this is where the, the rubber hits the road, right? Jeremiah says, They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. So you go to your nice Jewish grandmother and you say, we're living in the new covenant. And then she will point to this and say, not everyone knows God, right? You're, you're telling me, so we're not living in the new covenant. So this kind of um, you know, brings up the question, are we living in the new covenant? And if so, how? Uh, did the Messiah really bring it in? Now, remember we said ad olam, how ad olam, we take it to mean forever, but it doesn't mean forever the way we think it means forever. Do you guys remember we, we kind of spoke about that a little bit? The, the whole idea is, you know, we have terms, we have ideas, and we kind of read them back into Scripture. Don't do that. The best thing to do is allow the Scripture to speak for themselves, right? What's the model that the Scriptures give about covenants? What's the model that it gives about the promises of God? They take a long time. Imagine, you know, Abraham. Abraham's promised the land, seed, and blessing. Not only is everything like reversed in the next couple of verses, but then he has to wait 24 years before even having a son. And then you have Isaac, and he has issues with barrenness, and then Jacob, and then the children, and then they're in Egypt, and they're enslaved for 300 years, 400. But imagine you're at the 300-year point, you're talking with your buddy, and you go, boy, I'm so glad we have the Abrahamic covenant. And then he says to you, look out your window. Does it look like we have the Abrahamic covenant? No, it doesn't, but it was still intact, and we know that. So in the same way, are we living in the new covenant? Just because not every facet of it comes to fulfillment doesn't mean we're not living in there. That's the type of covenants that we see in Scripture. So we cannot just come with our own, it says this, so this better be happening. 
See how the scriptures themselves reveal it. Same thing with the land covenant. Is it not intact simply because we're out? No, it's still intact. The Davidic covenant, we're still waiting for the king. So the same way with the new covenant. So I think understanding the nature of covenants really helps kind of disseminate that, that argument. Then you have the cleansing from sin. Here, uh, he says in Jeremiah 31, 34, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. Again, this brings us back to the Garden of Eden. It brings us back to this harmony with God, the reversal of curses. And it's really interesting. In Ezekiel 16, 62 through 63, uh, this is the only time you see it, or if you know of another time, do let me know. It's the only time I could find where God says, he says, I will establish my covenant with you. You shall know that I'm the Lord when I atone for you, when I atone for your sins. And here you even see God himself taking language, priestly language uh, on himself for uh, forgiveness. So you're going to have a complete forgiveness of sins. And then finally, we have an unconditional covenant with Israel and Judah. Now, like I said before, you know, I, I taught um, this uh, a course on covenants in conjunction with Messiah, and you always see this correlation, like right from the Adamic covenant, right, with the seed of the woman coming, this notion of Noah, who functioned both as a king and a priest because he sacrificed, and he also had dominion, which points to Yeshua, Abraham, and so on. Everything kind of has this messianic theme in it, and the new covenant all the more so. You have this promise in Jeremiah 31, uh, 31, about the new covenant coming. And then soon after in Jeremiah 33, you have this promise about, uh, about the Messiah coming back. In Jeremiah 33, verse 14, it says, Behold, the days are coming. Again, the days are coming. That means same time as the new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David. Branch is a messianic term from Isaiah. The branch of David to spring forth, he shall execute justice and righteousness. In those days, Judah will be saved. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of his house of Israel. So here you have the promise of the new covenant. You have the hope of the land covenant as they're going to be reestablished. You have the hope of the Davidic covenant and all of it's wrapped up in the coming of the Messiah. And that's how they're all related together. Another a great hope that you see is, of course, the inclusion of foreigners. Uh, when it speaks about the new covenant in Isaiah 56, 7, for example, it says, Even those I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. And in Isaiah, the term peoples in the plural form is used of the nations. They're going to be brought in and they're going to be praising God as well. In Jeremiah 12, 14 through 16, it says, Thus says the Lord concerning all the wicked neighbors, it says that he's going to uproot them, he's going to judge them. But then if they really learn my ways and swear by my name, even as, as they taught my people to swear by Baal, they will be built up in the midst of my people. Here you have an inclusion of the nations in the new covenant. And that's one key characteristic that I think should really inform us in terms of how we live out our faith. You know, uh, there's a big debate within the Messianic movement about, you know, whether Messianic congregations should be solely Jewish or, you know, should there should be a mixture of Jewish and Gentile and things like that. And I remember having a conversation a couple of months ago. And in my viewpoint, one of the greatest pieces of evidence that we're living in the new covenant is the fact that Jews and Gentiles could be worshiping together the same God. 
You know, instead of your grandmother looking out her window and saying, boy, look out there, the new covenant has not come. Let her look out her window and say, wow, Jews and Gentiles together worshiping one God. This seems like the new covenant in some form has come, right? That's a much better uh, form there. So the fact that Jews and Gentiles together could worship is, I think, a great blessing. And I think that's what's instructed in the new covenant. Now, does that mean that there's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles? No. I remember my last, uh, I was a senior at Moody and I was speaking with my professor and I said, you know, I think that there is um, a special place for the Jewish people in terms of God's plan based on the Abrahamic covenant. And then he quoted me Galatians 3.28. Does anyone know what it is? Yeah, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Now they always stop there, right? Which is really convenient. There's neither Jew nor Greek. Uh, <laughs> but so that's, here's, here's a little bit of uh, some context. If anyone ever says, well, there's neither Jew nor Greek, so therefore, you know, you shouldn't go to a Messianic congregation or something of that sort. You, you see this phrase about three times in scripture. Galatians 3.28, neither Jew nor Greek. In 1 Corinthians 12.13, Paul says, for by one spirit we are all baptized, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And then in Colossians 3.11, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, right? No distinction between Jew or Greek. That's great. And that's absolutely true. But again, context is king. So what is it actually talking about? In 1 Corinthians, it's talking about gifts. There's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. It's not like Gentiles are more gifted than Jews or vice versa in the gifting. In Galatians, it's talking about salvation. There is no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. We all come to the same God in the exact same way through Yeshua. And in Colossians, it's talking about our sanctification. The fact that none is more sanctified than any other, and that is all true. However, in terms of living every day out, what you need to consider is 1 Corinthians 7. And this is what we call the rule of the congregation here, and this is what Paul writes. He says, Only as the Lord has assigned to each, as God has called each, in this matter let him walk. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. That means that you're supposed to remain as you are and live out the life faithfully, right? So this whole neither Jew nor Greek, you have to look at the context. Also, you have to read the rest of the verse, right? There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. Okay, well, what does Paul give? He gives instructions about slave and free. He gives instructions about male and female. There are distinctions. There are different roles that they play within the community, and that's totally fine. But in terms of salvation, of course, everyone is equal. So having that in mind, when you come to the new covenant, we have a spirit in us that allows us to work it out. And I think one of the greatest signs that we're living in a form of the new covenant today is the fact that Jews and Gentiles, though different, could worship in harmony together, because that's really the wall of partition that was broken down. So New covenant is the unconditional covenant. Think circumcision of the hearts. And again, our task here is to continually be filled. Be filled with the Spirit. Yield to the Spirit when it comes under conviction. And that goes back to this notion of obedience. So that concludes the, the new covenant. Um, hopefully over this weekend we've gained a good understanding or at least a slightly better understanding of the covenants of scripture, the plan of salvation, and a better pre appreciation for the, the character of God. And I would just leave with reiterating our responsibility, you know, to live in obedience to the spirit, live in obedience to God's Torah, and to ultimately point everyone to the Davidic king who's coming.
Thank you. Let's, uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the preservation of your word, Lord, that we could enjoy it. And ultimately, thank you, God, for your covenant faithfulness, Lord, that we can know you through the new covenant, that we can have your spirit in us. Lord, I pray that we leave here different than when we came. We leave here excited, wanting to share, wanting to study more, and ultimately know you more, Father. Thank you for this congregation. I pray you bless it. I pray your spirit fills it, Lord, and that this will be a light on a hill, Lord, for all who are around. We pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen.